Well, did you see it? What is another way that we can describe our relationship with God? You see it? Someone want to call it out if they thought they saw it? Sorry? Yep, yeah, we had that one. This is a new one in that passage. Yep, so we're definitely God's people. There's a particular one that's a new one. Have a look at verse 16. We are the temple of the living God. The temple of the living God. Do you think of yourself that way? I want to look with you tonight at why you are the temple of the living God and why that really makes a difference in living our lives. When you travel in Asia, there are many temples. They're often very colourful, ornate, or expensively decorated structures. It's obvious that someone takes a lot of care over them. They often look impressive. Well, I trust it'll be no surprise or offence to you if I look you in the eye and confess you don't look like a temple. But that's the point. It's not about the outside appearance. What makes us a temple is on the inside. And we're going to have a look at that now. And to do that, we need to do a little bit of Old Testament cherry picking. So I'm going to start right back. Originally, in Eden, Adam and Eve lived in a perfect relationship with God. They lived in God's presence. But after the first sin, when they were cast out of the garden, they could no longer have relationship with God. They were out of his presence. And then we see God making promises to Abraham that he and his descendants would be a a special nation. It's a promise of relationship between God and the descendants of Abraham. And God keeps his promise when he gets Israel out of Egypt and at Mount Sinai promises that they'll be his special possession out of all the nations in the world. They'll be his special possession and special priests to the whole world. Now, Israel accepts the offer of that special privilege, that special relationship with God, and receives the law. We, we think of the Ten Commandments, but there's the Ten Commandments and a whole lot of other laws that help them to know how to live as God's people, how to have a relationship with the one who is God. And, as soon, and it's soon after this that God gives Moses the detailed plans for building the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a tent and for God's people Israel, it was like a portable temple. They had the tabernacle when they were travelling in the wilderness and later on in their history, Solomon, King Solomon, builds the first permanent temple. The exciting thing for Israel is the purpose of the tabernacle and the temple is that God can dwell among his people. It's the place for God's presence to be among the people. They have this relationship with God that's so special that God's presence dwells there. And because God dwells there, well, it makes the tabernacle or the temple holy. That that word holy means it's set apart and it's special for the task of being the place where God and his people meet. But the animal skins, the timber... And the metal of the tabernacle are just that. They're just animal skins, timber and metal. What makes them holy is the the being and character of the God who dwells there. I heard a great illustration to explain God's holiness. Think of the sun. God is like the sun. The sun is pure power and goodness. But when something corruptible gets close to such pure power, it's destroyed. Yet... 
fantastically, God chooses to dwell with the people, to dwell with Israel in the Old Testament. But how can he? They're a sinful people. How can they go close to God? Well, God gives them sacrifices and food and other laws so they can come near into his presence and not be destroyed. And one of the critical sacrifices happens once a year when a lamb is sacrificed in substitution for the sin of the people. On that special day, the high priest enters deeper into the temple than anyone else has in the whole year. They call it this this inner room, the Holy of Holies, and that's where God's presence is particularly located. And the priest sacrifices the blood of the lamb in place of the blood, the lives of the sinful people before God on the altar. And God treats the lamb's blood as like the blood of the sinners and therefore God can forgive their sins for another year. The temple is holy. It's set apart because God's presence is there and he can continue to be there living amongst the people because of the sacrifices and other laws that deal with Israel's sin and dictate how close the Israelites can come to God when things happen in their life that make them unclean and it dictates what they need to do to, come, to um, become clean ceremonially and be able to approach God again. When later in Israel's history, their sin and rejection of God becomes so great that he allows them to be overrun and taken into exile, one of the hardest things for the devout Israelite is that God's presence leaves the temple in Jerusalem and the temple is destroyed. The, the thing that was the, 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 the badge, the thing they could be so proud of, that God, the God of all the world, was their God and had made the world, the one who made the world was their God amongst all the nations, he's now turned his back on them and left. And so when they're in exile in Babylon and it seems God is no longer with his people the prophets start to bring promises from God of a time when God's Messiah King will come and save Israel from her enemies and be a rallying point for all the nations to come and worship God. And hand in hand with this is a promise of a new temple where God will dwell again in the midst of his people. This time, though, because all the nations have come in, it's not just Israel, but it's multiracial. It's all the nations of the world gathered, worshipping with God. It's great promises. And in the New Testament, pulsates with the news that Jesus Christ is that long-awaited king or Messiah. Jesus is also the perfect lamb. His life, sacrificed on the cross, brings forgiveness of sins to all people for all time. His sacrifice doesn't need to be repeated once again every year. But it doesn't stop there. Because the sin is dealt with once and for all, it's no longer necessary for people to be at arm's length from God. The high priest used to get close once a year. But now, and this is the amazing thing, God the Holy Spirit lives in each and every Christian. The Apostle Paul describes it as a deposit guaranteeing 
the glory of all eternity. Let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 1. You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. When you believe and that Christ is your Lord, at that moment you become one of God's people and therefore at that moment uh, you're marked as one of his people. As Paul says here, you're marked by the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And in eternity, when we get there, it's going to be like one big temple. We're going to all live in God's presence. No barriers, no need for sacrifices. We'll see God and not have to fear being destroyed by his holiness. And that is such a massive privilege. It's such a massive privilege now to know that we have the Holy Spirit living in with us. God is with us in all things. Having the Spirit in us means we get help to understand the Bible when we're trying to read it and and take it in. Having the Holy Spirit working in us means we're helped to walk God's way. You know, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit's at work in you, bringing out love, joy, peace, peace, kindness, all those things you're studying if you're in the Wednesday night growth group at the moment. That's because the Holy Spirit's in you and you're called to walk with the Spirit as he he works in you in, in that particular forceful way. Having God in us means that when we're in our hardest, most difficult, lowest time, the Bible says the Spirit prays for us when we don't know what to pray because the pain is too great. It's such a privilege that God is with with us and within us. Because God dwells and is present among us, then the New Testament says the whole church is like a temple that the people, I mean, not the building. And that's why when some people in Corinth are damaging the church and causing lots of disunity by jealousy and quarrelling over power and leadership, Paul really arcs up and he writes them this. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Let me read to you. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Hurt God's church and God is really angry, is what Paul is saying there. But notice that you are God's temple. God's spirit dwells in your midst. One of the things to learn about about that is uh, the problem that sometimes happens where we think the building is the holy place. Unfortunately, uh, the tradition when a new church is built has always been to, they'll talk about consecrating the church. Um, Smarter denominations like the Baptists will talk about dedicating the church, and that's a much better word. When they start consecrating churches, you can start to think that we've built a temple here and that God's dwelling here. The only time God's here is when you're here, or or the 8 o'clockers, or the 9.45ers. When the people are here, where God's spirit dwells in us, God isn't dwelling in here like he did in the temple just by there being a mere building here. What makes this place a holy place is the people who, who are here. So 
this morning I was talking to a man after 8 o'clock church and he was really struggling with that because he'd been brought up always to think of the church as the consecrated building and because it's the consecrated building, when you went into the church, you spoke really quietly and you didn't make any noise and you were careful. I think, I'm assuming it's because God might get disturbed and jump out and beat you. I don't know. I don't really know. But it makes no sense in the New Testament. We know that our buildings are not temples. They're buildings to help us meet around God's word and with God in his word. And we, what is holy in the building is each of you because you have God's Holy Spirit in you. Paul's been talking about the whole church there in chapter 3, but a few chapters later, he addresses individuals as temples of God. Some of the Corinthians, you see, have been saying that it's okay to visit prostitutes. To challenge them, in chapter 6, verse 18, Paul reminds them that they're temples of God. So let me read to you. Flee from sexual immorality. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were brought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. It makes sense, doesn't it? You're a temple of the Holy Spirit because God is living in you. Well then, if God lives in you, honour God with your body. In his latter letter to the Corinthians, Paul now returns to that same argument that since God lives in you, it should affect your behaviour. And for those of you who've been concerned, yes, we've now got to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So back to 2 Corinthians. Remember that was page 996 if you've shut the Bibles. Verse 16, What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols for we are the temple of the living God. As he, after he makes that statement, we are the temple of the living God, he then says, and God has said, and then that triggers Paul to introduce a, six, a series of six Old Testament quotes. And what he does is he runs bits of verses together that together are reminders of God's promise to be present with his people. Paul sees that the Old Testament hope is being fulfilled in the Corinthian church, that God really is present to them like he promised would happen in the Old Testament. And if God is present with them, then, just like in the Old Testament, they need to be a holy people. After all, they belong to a holy God. And so one of the quotes there is in verse 17, and that's from Isaiah 52, where Elisha read earlier, and, and that's from when Israel is going to be saved from exile, they're urged, when you come out, don't live like the idolaters did when you were back in Babylon, worshipping their different idols. No, no. Uh, Come out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Don't take the idols with you, in other words. And all this is summarised really well by chapter 7, verse 1. Have a look at 7.1. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. You see what the point is there? God lives in you. You're the temple of the living God. 
So out of reverence for God, see the last phrase, be perfecting or growing in holiness. In other words, grow more and more like God and less like the non-believers you live amongst in your attitudes, priorities and behaviour. So I want to ask you, do you ever think of yourself as a temple of the Holy Spirit? What if you did? What if you did think of yourself as a temple of the Holy Spirit? Well, you're to be holy. You're to be growing more holy. So the question to ask, is there anything in your life that is stopping you growing in holiness. In the first part of the passage, Paul is particularly concentrating on the influence of other people on the Corinthians. So the question to ask from that is, is another person stopping or influencing you away from growing in holiness? In in verses 14 to 16, Paul has a string of questions that basically can't be easily ignored. He just piles it on, contrasting the believer and the non-believer or the Christian and the non-Christian, making the point that the Christian and the non-Christian are fundamentally different in their ultimate direction. One isn't about worshipping God. One isn't about living holiness in reverence to God. And so he's challenging them about where their influences, who their influences, where they're coming from and who they are. Of course, this isn't to say you can't relate to people who aren't Christian. You can work together in a community group like a Probus Club or a PNC or on a sporting team or on a school project or to raise money for a charity. You can be great friends with someone who, who doesn't share your faith in Christ. And Jesus wants you to do all those things. Remember, just a month ago we saw on our kickoff. Uh, Sunday, we saw that we are to be salt and light and that that involves being in our community and not ghettoing ourselves away from it. But when it comes to growing in holiness, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? So are there people in your life who are so influential on your thinking or behaviour that they hold you back from growing? Hold you back from growing out of reverence for God. Paul's famous opening line in relation to this and those who hold you back is verse 14. Verse 14 of our passage. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Paul's thinking of this up on the screen. Oxen get yoked together so they can plough a field. So that thing across behind their heads is the yoke and it keeps them together. In Paul's illustration here, two oxen would be like two Christians and the influence they can have on each other for mutual growth and working together in God's ministry. But in verse 14, Paul is thinking of this. An oxen and a donkey yoked together. Obviously, these two are going to have trouble getting the job done. One will have much greater weight and height and pull the other off balance. Can you see uh, what Paul's angling at here? 
God's given the Christian church a task. We've been set apart to serve God, and that involves growing in holiness and helping others to do so as well. In the words of our church vision, same idea, we're to share the gospel to all freshwater, helping people to encounter, believe, and grow in Jesus. Obviously, we're going to do that by working together as brothers and sisters in Christ. In Corinth, at the time of this letter, there were newcomers teaching a different gospel to what Paul had taught them. They're a bad influence and not to be listened to lest the Corinthians fail to grow and honour God, or worse, completely fall away from Jesus. And we saw last week, and you see after this passage, that Paul pleads with them, open your hearts to me, don't pull away from me, don't listen to those other ones. So I want to say to you, Be careful who you listen to. Be really discerning about who you read about life advice and what's important in life. Keep asking yourself whether a particular life advice is going to help you honour God more. Be careful then whose podcasts you listen to. Be discerning with the bloggers, which bloggers you're into. We have to be careful who we throw our lot in with. In Corinth also, there were lots of temples to other gods, and these temples were like meeting places as well. They had restaurants on the side. The the food and the meat in the restaurants had been sacrificed to idols. Some writers think that when Paul wrote about not being yoked with unbelievers, he was particularly thinking about going to the idol temples. I don't know that it's clear that this is the reason for Paul's words, but certainly a Christian would have to weigh up if involvement in a particular activity with their friend was honouring of God. So would it be being yoked together with an unbeliever to go with them and participate in worship in their Hindu or Buddhist temple? Well, it would, obviously, wouldn't it? But are there other things in your life that you do with a friend which aren't helping you grow in, in holiness, aren't helping you go forward with God? Maybe for you, the application about not being yoked together with unbelievers has to do with the people you spend most of your time with. Again, I'm not saying cut yourself off from unbelievers. Jesus doesn't want that, want that. But consider if someone has such influence on you that you make choices that aren't honouring God but are pleasing them. Now, at this point, I need to say that if you have an unbelieving spouse, I'm not saying withdraw from them. Paul writes elsewhere in Corinthians, actually, that if the Corinthians have an unbelieving spouse who live with them, they should continue to do so. You, if you're in this situation, know a lot better than me how tricky it can be to love your non-believing spouse and love God, about the compromises you sometimes have to make and the difficult decisions that you can be faced with. Well, keep at it. Hopefully, he or she will see that your faith makes you a great wife or husband and not make it hard for you. But if that's not the case, well, keep seeking to be involved serving the Lord as you are able Keep praying. Know that God understands when you just can't do something that your Christian friend can because of your marriage situation. God God understands that. 
The bottom line tonight is to realise what a privilege it is. You are the temple of God. Therefore, you are to be holy and grow in holiness out of reverence for God. So don't be yoked together with any unbeliever whose influence on you is so great that you're pulled down. And if you're in that situation, pray to God for guidance as to how to decouple the yoke. I'm going to pray that now. Father, we thank you that you live in us through the Holy Spirit, that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. It's not a way that we often think of ourselves, but as we've been led to do that tonight, Lord, we pray for your help in growing in holiness, in growing in a way that is more like you, more like the Lord Jesus. We thank you that your Spirit's at work in us to help that happen. But we pray for your help. We pray for each other. If any of us have uh, people in our lives who we're unhelpfully yoked to, that we aren't able uh, to grow and seek our Christian growth uh, because of their influence, I pray you'd help them work out how to sort that out. And Lord, pray too for those who are married to non-Christian spouses. Please help them to love their spouse and be great wives or husbands. Uh, please help them, Lord, too, to um, be a great ambassador for you in uh, how they live their lives. And I pray, Lord, you would, by your spirit, uh, illuminate and turn the hearts and minds of that loved one uh, to, to you. Please have mercy on them. Amen.